If you have your Bibles, please turn them to Matthew chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 13 through 17 and our Lord's baptism by John in the Jordan. So hear the word of the Lord. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, the psalmist says that the unfolding of your word gives light. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would so unfold your word to us this morning that we might behold the light of your glory in the face of Jesus Christ, your beloved Son. And as we behold His glory, may we be transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We ask this not because we are worthy, but because you are rich in grace and mercy. And we ask it in Jesus' name, who lives and reigns with you in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. My wife has been watching a series called Indian Matchmaking. Have you seen this? It's about a woman named Sima Taparia, I think that's how you pronounce it, who by her own self-reporting is Mumbai's top matchmaker. And uh, the, the premise of the show is that wealthy individuals, wealthy families hire her to arrange marriages. And uh, inevitably, every episode goes something like this. Uh, you know, she's been hired by this family, been hired by an individual, and she comes to them, and she brings kind of various resumes of potential suitors. And it says, you know, this person was born in this city, uh, they've got this job, here are their hobbies, and so forth. And uh, the person has to kind of go through the various resumes that are presented and decide who they would like to meet. And of course, the, the great drama of the show is not getting to look at these prospects on paper, but meeting them in person. And the question that always lies uh, beneath the surface is, will they meet expectations, right? Will I find my match? Well, John the Baptist, if you will, is the Bible's great matchmaker, he stands between the Lord and His people, and His calling is to introduce to them the Lord who's come to save His people. In fact, in John's gospel, John describes himself as the friend of the bridegroom who rejoices with the meeting of the bride and the bridegroom. Well, so far in the gospel of Matthew, we have learned about Jesus on paper. We have heard about his birth 
and his genealogy. We've learned that he is a descendant of Abraham and of the great King David. We have learned that his birth was miraculous. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the virgin's womb. We've learned of the uh, persecution that his family faced under Herod and of their necessity of fleeing to Egypt. And we've told that after returning to uh, Israel, he was raised in Nazareth. We've also met the matchmaker, and that's the, the kind of preceding passage in Matthew chapter 3. We've met John the Baptist, who's been described in terms of Isaiah as the one who was sent to prepare the way of the Lord. And we know that he's been come uh, performing a baptism with water as an opportunity for Israel to come and repent of their sins and receive the promise of forgiveness that the Lord has made. But now, in our passage, for the first time, we meet Jesus in person. We hear His voice. And the surprising thing about this passage is that when Jesus comes to John, He confounds the expectation of the matchmaker. He comes to John as the one who has been promised, as the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit, but He comes to be baptized. And John says, whoa, 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 this is not right. Well, what we're going to see in this passage today is that it's tempting to really think of Jesus as someone who's there just to meet our expectations. But the Jesus who is presented to us in this passage is a Jesus who exceeds our expectations. And indeed, often before He exceeds our expectations, He confounds them. He surprises us. We're going to look at uh, two features of this passage today. First, we're going to look at the riddle of Jesus' baptism. Why does the one who baptizes with the Spirit submit himself first to John's baptism? That's the riddle of his baptism. And then secondly, we're going to look at the revelation of Jesus' baptism. And as we'll see, this passage reveals Jesus to be the Father's beloved Son and His anointed servant, the perfect match for sinners like you and me, because He's a match made in heaven. So first, the riddle of Jesus' baptism. Why must the baptizer first be baptized? Look again at verses 13, 14, and 15. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by Him, and John wants to prevent Him. I need to be baptized by you. John knows that he's a sinner in need of forgiveness. He knows that he needs the Holy Spirit's renewal. And he knows Jesus has been promised as the one who's going to give these things. So he says, I need to be baptized by you. He also knows Jesus is the sinless one who doesn't need his sins to be forgiven, who doesn't need the renewal of the Holy Spirit that sinners need. He says, you don't need to be baptized by me. Why is Jesus coming then to John to be baptized? Well, I don't think we can fully appreciate the significance of, of, of the conundrum that Jesus' coming presents to John unless we think back to how John has described Jesus already at the beginning of chapter 3. I mentioned this already. John has said that Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit 
and with fire. John's water baptism was just a sign of the true spiritual baptism that Jesus came to bring. We've also seen that John has described Jesus as one who is mightier than I. He's one who earlier in the gospel has been named Jesus, the one who saves his people from their sins, as the one who is named Emmanuel, who is God with us. And indeed, that name is the name that lies behind John's own identification as the forerunner. You remember Isaiah 40, which John quotes to describe his ministry. He's the forerunner who's sent to prepare the way of the Lord. The imagery here is from the ancient world of a, of a messenger who runs ahead of a king, announcing to a city that the king is coming. Well, the forerunner, in John's case, according to Isaiah, has been sent to prepare the way of none other than God himself. The Lord is coming. He's mightier than I in that sense. He's God Almighty. And so the question is, what is He doing here? Why has He come to be baptized by me when I need to be baptized by Him? Well, Jesus' answer to John's question in verse 15 begins to solve the riddle. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What does this mean? Jesus is the one who's come to fulfill all righteousness. Well, I think Matthew has already given us a clue at the end of chapter 2, where he says that after Jesus returned from Egypt, having fled from Herod, he lived in Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. And you're like, well, hold on a second. I, I read my Old Testament, and I don't remember an Old Testament passage saying that uh, the coming king would be called a Nazarene. What's going on here? Well, the best answer, I think, is that we have likely a, a play on words, okay? Nazar means branch. And Isaiah prophesied the coming of a righteous branch after God's judgment had fallen upon his proud and sinful people and chopped down the tree, if you will, of Israel. God promised that one day a righteous branch would bloom again and righteousness would flourish. And so this, I think, is part of the answer to what Jesus means by saying He has come to fulfill all righteousness. He is the righteous branch. And as we read on in Matthew chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 5, this is exactly who we see Jesus to be. Immediately after being baptized, he goes into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And yet, unlike Adam, who failed when tempted in the garden, unlike Israel, who failed when tempted in the wilderness, Jesus is the righteous king who passes the test. We then go to Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, and Jesus ascends a mountain. And what does he do? He teaches God's people God's law. He is not only the one who fulfills righteousness through his obedience, but he's the one who has come to bring about a righteous community through his teaching. And so this is part of the answer, but there's more. And this is where we see the second part of our passage, the revelation of Jesus' baptism. And this is where the riddle is truly solved. 
and resolved. What we see in verses 16 and 17 that the reason Jesus has to be baptized is that he's God's beloved son who's come to fulfill the role of God's anointed servant. Again, look at verse 16 and 17. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Now, I want you to notice something in the text in verse 16. The heavens were opened. That's a very significant statement. This is Matthew's way of telling us that the only way that the riddle of Jesus' identity and mission can truly be resolved is if heaven itself reveals it to us, if the Father himself reveals it to us. Because he is a match for us that is made in heaven, his identity and mission is something that can be revealed to us only from heaven. And this is a very important theme in Matthew's gospel. So, so look over to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, we see a second time John the Baptist is scratching his head about Jesus. He's lying in prison. He's about to be beheaded. And he's kind of thinking, boy, if I'm the forerunner of a coming king, funny thing that I would be in jail for it. Shouldn't the king be bringing liberty to his followers and to his forerunners especially? And so he sends some messengers to Jesus, and they say, are you the one who is to come, or do we look for another? And, you know, the question you might ask is, well, you know, maybe John had skipped some days of Hebrew Bible school. Uh, maybe John wasn't living right, and he just wasn't seeing the obvious about Jesus. But this is not what Matthew wants us to see, Okay. There's a reason that even John could not fully understand who Jesus was and what he came to do. And it has to do with revelation. To understand who Jesus is, what he came to do, it's something that the Father must reveal. So look at the end of Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. After John has sent people to ask him, are you the one who is to come? Jesus answered and declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to who the Son chooses to reveal him. Philip over to Matthew chapter 16. Remember, Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? And they've given various answers. But he said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, for once, gives the right answer. Or he's about to give a wrong answer two seconds later, but he gives the right answer. You are the son of the living God. And then what does Jesus say in verse 17? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So if we were to understand the riddle of Jesus' person and work, it must be revealed to us. And this is what we have at Jesus' baptism. The heavens are opened. And then note how 
Jesus is revealed. There's a vision, and there's a voice. The vision, the Spirit of God descends upon Jesus like a dove and comes to rest on Him. The idea that the sign of the dove representing the Spirit harkens back to Noah's flood. And you remember after the waters of judgment had destroyed all living creatures, when the water subsided, a dove was sent out. And the sign that the world was once again at peace with God was that a dove was able to, to rest, to find a place to live outside the ark. We'll come back to that in a moment. But the sign of the dove reveals something about Jesus. But there's not only a vision, there is a voice. And it's interesting later in 2 Peter, when Peter is authenticating his apostolic eyewitness, he says, we heard a voice from heaven when we were with him on the mountain. Now, he's talking about the Mount of Transfiguration there. But, but the, the heavenly divine authentication of the Son is crucial to understanding who he is. So what does he say? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Well, very quickly, I want you to notice three features of this heavenly revelation and, and how they resolve this riddle. Why must the baptizer be baptized? First, the Father identifies Jesus as His beloved Son. What we are seeing in this vision what we are hearing in this voice is the pulling back of the heavenly curtain and the revelation to us of the deepest, most profound, and most wonderful truth about God. God the Father crowning God the Son with God the Holy Spirit. And the portrait that we see is a portrait of love and delight in satisfaction. We call God the blessed Trinity, and blessed there means happy. This is exactly what we see at the revelation of the Jordan. The image of the Spirit coming to rest on Jesus, remaining on Him. This is, this is a, a picture of delight, of satisfaction. The, the words we hear from the Father's mouth, beloved Son, express the same thing. Now, what's important to see is that what we, what we see in the revelation of Jesus and of the Father's delight in Him at, at, at John's baptism, this is not something that just started happening in the Jordan on that day of Jesus' baptism. This is the revelation of a love that never began. There are hints of it in the Old Testament. There's the, the voice of wisdom that speaks to us in Proverbs chapter 8, 22. And he says that he was with God before creation as a, as a master workman, laying the foundation of the world. And, and, and before creation, it says, God delighted in me and I delighted in him. We overhear it in passages like Psalm 110, where we hear the Lord speaking to David's Lord, saying, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. But now in a way that transcends all of these Old Testament revelations, we see more fully who is speaking, and we see to whom He is speaking. The Father from heaven says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And in John chapter 17, as Jesus is praying for us, as He approaches His death, 
You remember what he says in verse 24, Father, I desire that they may be with me where I am, that they may see my glory that you have given me before the foundation of the world because you loved me before the foundation of the world. What we are seeing at Jesus' baptism is the eternal life of the triune God, the love that never began, the love that will never end, which, of course, only raises the question even more profoundly, what is he doing here, standing in these waters amidst sinners? Well, the answer comes in the second feature of this revelation. Not only does the Father identify Jesus as his beloved Son, the eternal object of his good pleasure, he identifies Jesus as his anointed servant. We see this in the phrase, with whom I am well pleased. Now, for the sake of time, we're not going to turn over there, but if you look at Matthew chapter 12 later, verses 18 through 21, Matthew cites Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 3, which is a long passage describing the servant of Isaiah. And one of the things that Isaiah 42 says about the Lord's servant, that the Lord is well pleased with him. Well, that is the language that is being used here in Matthew chapter 3 as well. And it's a fascinating thing, isn't it? God quoting Scripture. God, the author of Scripture, now taking up Scripture and quoting it to us. And what is He doing? He's making sure we're tracking He's making sure we understand who this beloved son is and what he's come to do. And what has he come to do? He's come to fulfill the role of Isaiah's servant. And this brings us to the answer of what is this son of God, this incarnate son of God, this servant doing here, standing amidst sinners? Because there's another passage in Matthew's gospel where he quotes an Isaianic passage regarding the servant. Matthew chapter 8, 17, where Jesus has been performing miracles and, and he's been touching the sick and healing them of their diseases. But this time he doesn't quote Isaiah 42. This time he quotes Isaiah 53. And specifically verse 4. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases washing my car last week. I actually got corrected after the first service, told I was doing it wrong. Um, so it was very helpful. Um, but I was washing my car last week, and you know how you do it. You, you get out your bucket, you fill it up with water, you put the soap in, and then you wash your car. And then the thing that happens as you go, what happens? Your, your clean water, every time you get, dip your thing in there, it gets dirtier and dirtier and dirtier. And sometimes you got to pour it out and start all over. And the guy after she said, use two buckets. I'm like, hmm, great idea. Um, well, this is in a sense what's happening in the Jordan. God's beloved Son has come. He's come to the place where sinners are symbolically having their sins washed away in the river. And He's coming there as the servant who's mightier than John, and he's come for what purpose? To take those sins, to bear those sins. I've been reading First and Second Kings, and 
recently read again the story of Naaman from 2 Kings chapter 5, and it's a fascinating story. Naaman the Syrian who, who becomes a leper and has no way of getting rid of his leprosy until a little Jewish servant girl tells him, there's a prophet in Israel, he can heal you. And she remember the story, Naaman goes to Elisha. And Elisha, to make a long story short, tells him to wash himself in the Jordan. And it's very fascinating. In the Greek translation of that passage, it says he baptized himself in the Jordan. And what happens? He's healed of his leprosy. Well, you remember he offers to pay Elisha for it. Elisha won't take the money, so Naaman returns to Syria. But on his way back, Elisha has a servant, Gehazi. You remember him? And Gehazi says, boy, master just kind of turned his, his eye toward a lot of money there. Nice clothes. And so he runs after Naaman. He says, oh, the master changed his mind. Why don't you, don't you give me some of that loot? And I'll, I'll, I'll be kind enough to take it back to him. And he comes back to Elisha. Do you remember what Elisha says to him? Because of your greed, Naaman's leprosy is going to be on you. Now, here's the fascinating thing about that story. It's not just that Naaman has been healed of leprosy and that Gehazi, because of his greed, is now going to become a leper. What he says is that the leprosy that was on Naaman is now going to be put on you. Well, this is the answer to the riddle of Matthew chapter 3. Okay? The Jordan, where the sins of Israel are being washed away. <laughs> Why is the Son of God and servant of God standing in this river? He doesn't have any sins that need to be cleansed. He's not in need of the Spirit's renewal. Why is He here? He's come to take our sins upon himself. And this explains finally the significance of the dove. Why is it that the servant of Isaiah is anointed with the Spirit with reference to the sign of the dove? Well, the answer comes in Isaiah chapter 54. And you remember Isaiah chapter 54 comes after Isaiah chapter 50. Or your Bible knowledge is excellent. You got an A for Sunday school today. Listen to what Isaiah 54, 9 and 10 says. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. You see, it's by fulfilling the vocation of Isaiah's servant outlined in Isaiah 53 that Jesus fulfills the promise of Isaiah 54. Why was Jesus baptized? That the love of the Father that always has and always will remain on His beloved Son might come to remain on you and me forever. Why must Jesus be baptized? Why must the baptizer be baptized? Because He's Jesus, the one who's come to save His people from their sins. Because He's Emmanuel, the one who's come to guarantee that God will be with us forever. Frederick Dale Bruner in his commentary on Matthew says this about Jesus' baptism. And I conclude with this. Jesus ends his ministry on a cross between thieves. 
He begins his ministry in a river among sinners. Jesus loves me, this I know, for his baptism tells me so. Baptized ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Jesus, God's beloved son and anointed servant, is a perfect match for sinners like you and me because he is a match made in heaven.